Grab your Bibles and open them with me to um, the book of Romans. We uh, resume tonight our, our study of the book of Romans that we left back in May. And we pick up at a text which is familiar to most of you. Um, if it's next to uh, John 3.16, it's probably the, uh, the most uh, quoted verse in all of Christendom. Uh, Romans 8.28. Now guys, um, from verse 28 of Romans through the end of chapter 9, really, uh, every verse is really packed with some kind of uh, stirring information. And, and not only that, they're, they're verses that are fairly well known to you. So um, I, I'm going to slow down. Now, if you think I've been slow in the past, <laughs> uh, you ain't seen nothing yet. Uh, we're going to spend, we're, we're, I'm in no hurry. I hope you're not. Um, I know my Arminian brethren would, are, are eager for me to get to Romans 9. And I'll get there sooner or later. Uh, Romans 9, of course, uh, uh, also is jammed packed full of uh, theological and doctrinal truth. But um, we're going to take our time, and um, particularly with these verses beginning with verse 28. I'm only going to read verse 28 because it will ring a bell I know. Uh, It is a great promise quoted often by the people of God, and it states, And we know. That those who love God, for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. In translations that are more familiar to you, it goes like this. And we know that all things work together for good to them that are called, to them that love God and are the called according to his purpose. That's the text. I know it's familiar to you. The book of Romans has been called the, um, the summit of the New Testament. Romans 8 has been called the pinnacle of Romans 8. Or verse 28 has been called the the pinnacle of Romans 8. And verse verse 28 is called the apex of chapter 8. Did you get that? Romans is called the the summit of the New Testament. Chapter 8 is called the, uh, the, the, the pinnacle of the book of Romans. And verse 28 is called the apex of chapter 8. So what we're dealing with is the apex of the pinnacle of the summit. Um, We are traveling, ladies and gentlemen, in in the uh, the upper reaches of Christian truth. Uh, This this statement is is one where the the air is somewhat rarefied when it comes to theological uh, content. In, in verse 28, Paul makes an assertion. Um, well, um, he makes an assertion that has comforted Christians for, for millennia. And then he proceeds to prove the assertion that he's made in verse 28. And he does that primarily in verses 29 and 30. But there, there's an argument that could be made that he uses the rest of chapter 28 and even chapter 9 the rest of chapter 8 and the chapter 9, to prove the assertion made by him in verse 28. Now, gang, this, this is one of the most remarkable statements that you're going to find anywhere in the Bible. 
Uh, it is, um, it's packed with, with more doctrine and, um, and not only doctrine, but in addition to doctrine, packed with more comfort than just about any verse you'll find in the Bible. Uh, in all honesty, it is in the doctrine where the comfort is found. It's, um, it's, it's from the doctrine from which we derive our comfort. And, and I must tell you, it, it is a privilege to examine it together. Because it's, it's, um, it's not like a work of art or a, or a piece of philosophy uh, from which we can step back and, and you know, make our assessments and, and admire it uh, like we would a piece of art. It's, um, it's truth. It's truth on which we build our lives. And some lives, ladies and gentlemen, are, are saved by statements like this. And when I use the word saved, I mean that those lives are made worth living. They're made endurable. They're made, they're made uh, to be bearable because of truths like this one. This is a truth uh, not, not for governments or for, for the stock market or for political parties. This is the kind of hope contained in verse 28 that makes the difference for many between living and dying. It's, it's a promise like this that uh, in the midst of some of the crises that we experience in life, and there's a lot of them in there, um, it's promises like these that enable us to go on. This is not a promise for for a government or a, a, a political party. This is a promise for people, for individuals. And a, and a glorious promise it is. You know, guys, um, every soul represents some kind of battlefield. Um, and thus, Romans 8.28 becomes a word for all seasons. You know, Joseph Parker, who was uh, the great preacher uh, in London when... Spurgeon was alive. Uh, people would go hear Spurgeon and go hear Parker in the morning and Spurgeon at night. But um, Joseph Parker said, There is a broken heart in every pew. Preach to the sorrowing, and you will never want for a congregation. This, ladies and gentlemen, is a, is a promise for all seasons, for all men and for all seasons. It is a it is a glorious piece of truth and a privilege to even handle it. Oh, that uh, it might be handled well. The text begins with a conjunction. It begins with the word and, uh, suggesting that Paul is introducing a new thought to his argument. He is adding um, somewhat of a new thought to his ongoing uh, argument uh, in the midst of this whole argument of his, he's adding something. It, it is related to his major theme, but it is a new thought. And the new thought comes in the form of a proposition. It comes in the form of an assertion. Uh, and as I said, he elaborates on that assertion throughout the rest of this chapter, but primarily he elaborates and demonstrates it in verses uh, 29 and 30. Now, before we can get to the part that you long to hear and long to hear dealt with and, and the, the part that you love, that the people of God love to feast on, 
there's, there's one thing that, you, that we've got to do as we begin. And there's, there's something that you've got to understand about it before you dive into it. And that is, you must take note in this passage, in this verse, that there is a limitation to it. There is a limitation, there is a boundary that's placed on it by the Apostle Paul. Paul does not say all things work together for good for everyone. He doesn't say that. This promise, which is so glorious, uh, applies to a certain group of people. Not to everybody. It only has relevance to the people who are described in this verse. He gives you the description of the people to whom it is available. But by so doing, he has placed limits around it. There is a universal that's contained in the text, and we'll look at that next week. But the first thing that you've got to see is that this text contains a limit, a boundary to it. The promise is only applicable to those who are specified in this statement. This is not universal good news. Oh, it's good news. It's glorious news. It's tremendous news. But it is good news not for everybody. Um, to, to maybe try to illustrate my point, you know, you, you may remember when, um, when Israel left Egypt and they crossed the Red Sea and, you know, all the, the, um, the Egyptian army was covered over by the Red Sea. Well, right after that, you may recall, there, there's something that Moses does. You remember what he does? What does he do in chapter 15, right after 14? What does he do? He sings the song. He puts in, he puts in words um, this glorious hymn of praise, and there are statements in it that are just celebratory about God's great deliverance for them. But, but uh, tucked in that song, I think it's verse 7, where Moses says something like, um, He has thrown horse and rider into the sea, you know. Well, you know, ladies and gentlemen, that, that's, that parting of the Red Sea is a glorious thing. <laughs> if you're Israel. It's not glorious if you're Egypt. It's glorious if you're an Israelite. But it is deathly if you're an Egyptian. The same event has glorious application for some people, but not for all people. Um, another story you'll recognize, the, the story of the flood. Noah, he goes out and builds that big old boat and he gets his family on board and those, uh, those couplets from the animal kingdom are all safely ensconced on board. And, but they got a problem. The problem is there's a big gaping hole in the side of the boat. It's the door. You know, it's the place where the, the, the animals kind of trooped up two by two. What are we going to do about that door, boys? And all of a sudden, I think it's uh, chapter 7, verse 16, where we're told that God closes the door. God closed that door. Now, that's a wonderful thing if you're on the boat. It's a terrible thing 
if you're not on that boat. Boy, isn't it great that God has come to close the door. Because, I mean, you know, we got a big problem. If that door doesn't get a big old gaping hole in the side of the boat. But God closed it. And that's great for Noah and his family and the animals. For everybody else, it is not good news. I'm simply trying to point out, ladies and gentlemen, if you'll notice the text, all things work together for good to them that love God and are the called according to His purpose. This is good news. But it is not universal good news. It is good news for the people who are described and specified in the text. That's all. That's all. Um, Gang, there there is really only one division um, in the human race. There is only one line of demarcation in the human race, and it's not the line between the Democrats and the Republicans. It's not the line between the communists and the capitalists. It's not the line that that, uh, Jim Bowie drew in the sand at the Alamo and said everybody that's going to stand and fight, you know, Pancho Villa, get on one side of it. That's That's not the line that separates mankind. There's only one. There's only one line that separates the entirety of the human race. And here it is. To those who love God and are the called according to His purpose. You're on that side of the line and everything else, everything else is on the other side of the line. There's only one line. And it's given to you in this glorious statement by the Apostle Paul. And so I'm simply saying, but that none of nobody can lay claim to this glorious truth, this consolation that is found in verse 28, unless you are described by it. And he gives us the description. But unless this describes you. This text is not for you. When I, when I was in seminary, um, I, we had this hospital ministry class that I, uh, it was kind of a goofy class, but they were trying to get you comfortable in the hospital, and so they assigned you a wing in the hospital or a floor in the wing, and so we had to go up and, you know, down the halls and just, hello. Um, and, and I remember um, going in and speaking to some very, I mean, some people in some very difficult circumstances physically. I mean, it was pretty, uh, and I would always use Romans 8.28. For all things work together for good to them that love God and are called according to His purpose. Now, that's good news. If that describes you. This thing that you're experiencing, all this, it, it, it works together for good. If this text describes you. Ladies and gentlemen, there's nothing more sweeping and more glorious than what's stated in verse 28 here. But understand. It is great news for those described in the text, but them only. Good news, indeed, but not universal good news. Now, I want you to take a look at at how Paul describes the people for whom this is good news. He says two things about them. First of all, he says they love God, and he says they are the called according to his purpose. Now, gang. 
um, why does Paul use that language? Why does Paul say, uh, here's the people I'm talking to. They're the people that love God and are the called according to His purpose. Why does he use, why doesn't he say, uh, this is, this is intended for the people who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? You know, 21st century evangelicals are much more comfortable with that, that language. Uh, they believe in the Lord. But Paul doesn't use that language. He uses this language. He calls them people who love God. Why does he use that language as opposed to some other things that he could have said? Well, I want to suggest there's three reasons why he uses this language. Number one, ladies and gentlemen, the most glaring contrast between the Christian and the non-Christian is that the Christian loves God and the non-Christian, listen to me, the non-Christian hates that God. I chose that word subconsciously. Now, the non-Christian may love a God. He may love the God of nature or the God of the, of the philosophers. But the God of revelation, this God, he hates him. Remember the story in, in Matthew chapter 8? I, I, I marvel every time I read this story. It's the story where Jesus crosses the, the Sea of Galilee. He goes on the other side over there, you know, and he's in the area of Decapolis which simply means ten cities. There's t- apparently, there were ten cities around there. But anyway, he's over there, and he runs into the Gadarene demoniac. Remember that guy? He was naked and running around like a fool. <laughs> you know, he was, he was demon-possessed. And, and, uh, and the, the, one of the demons inside Jesus, I mean, inside the, the demoniac says, um, you know, don't cast us out. Let us go into those pigs. So Jesus gives them permission. All right, go to the pigs. So they go to the pigs, and the pigs run down. To, you know, they're all killed in the Sea of Galilee. And the Gadarene demoniac, Gadarene demoniac is delivered. And so all of the people who were caring for the pigs, which was a Jew caring for a pig in the first place, but all the people caring for the pigs run into the city and the, and, the, and the people from the city come out to Jesus. And you know what they say to him? They say, this is a wonderful thing that you've done for our city. Could we give you the key to the city? I mean, this is a great thing that you have accomplished. Uh, could you stay around a little while and teach us some of the truths that you've got? Is that what they do? You know what they say? They plead with him, the text says. They plead with him to leave our region. You've just done something that nobody in the world could have done. By the way, could you get out of here? We don't like your type around. We don't want you around here. They're more comfortable with the gathering demoniac than they are with this Jesus. It, it's... It's not only that the non-Christian doesn't believe, ladies and gentlemen, they do not like this God. They don't like this. They, they like the idea of God. But this God. You know what? In fact, you can believe in God and still not be a Christian. Jesus says that. James says that. Jesus says that. You believe in God, you do well. The demons also believe and tremble, you know? I'm trying to explain why Paul uses this language to describe the people that he's got in mind. Because the the, the, the greatest description of the Christian versus the non-Christian is the Christian loves God. We're lovers of this God. Now, Now, how does the New Testament define love for God? Jesus does that very clearly in John 15. He says, if you love me... Keep my commandments. Um, There's no such thing, ladies and gentlemen, as some kind of theoretical love for God 
you know, the, uh, the man who says, I love my fiancée, but I love to torture her over her past. He doesn't love you. I love my wife, but I like to see her cry. Every now and then, I need to put her in her place. No, make her cry. He, he doesn't love you. There's nothing theoretical about love. It's always practical, ladies and gentlemen. Which really brings me to the second reason why I think Paul uses this, this phrase about they love God as opposed to another one that he could have used. The second reason, I think, is that Paul uses the term love rather than believing. Because it is our love for this God that is the real issue when we face adversity. One of the best ways to discover whether a man loves God or not is to watch him in his reaction to trial. Which, ladies and gentlemen, is at the center of Romans 8.28, which we'll get to sometime. The reason that he uses this love word instead of believe word, I think, is because that is the, that's what's at stake when adversity arises. And that's what's, what Romans 8.28 is going to talk about in a minute or in a month. <laughs> um, it, it, that's what's at stake. If you want to find out if a man loves this God, watch him as he, as he, handles, as he handles trial. You know the parable of the sower, Mark 4? The parable goes out and sows his seed and it falls some, you know, and, and then it falls on the, 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 the uh, stony ground, I think. Is it the, is it the, I think it's the stony. No, 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 it's, it's, the, it's the thorny ground. And it springs up, but it doesn't last. And you know why? You remember? Persecution arises. Ah, no, well, yeah, I, 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 I told you I that, but uh, I'm not, I don't want any of this business. And so there, that's what's at stake. Love, that is the, 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 the question of whether I love, that's what's at stake when adversity rises, guys. Um, we either react similarly to Job or we act similarly to Job's wife. One of the two. You remember what Job did when that whole ugly thing unfolds. You know, what I found interesting Sunday morning when we did that kind of a strange thing on Sunday morning. And we were, we were reading passages that demonstrated God's sovereign rule over the affairs of man. The most frequently read from passage was the book of Job. That was interesting to me. But be that as it may, um, you know what happens to Job. You know, everything is swept away. And, and in chapter 1, he says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But then about a chapter later, his wife comes to him and says, you idiot, curse God and die. Get it over with. The point is, we, we either react similarly to Job or similarly to Job's wife. One of the two. Um, gang, affliction or suffering does not in and of itself lead a person into a deeper and more profitable relationship with God. It can just as easily lead, it, lead you the other way. Making people bitter. You know, it's easy to love this God of ours when He meets all of my expectations. When life is is like I want it. You know, guys, um, particularly among us men, um, you ever heard of a, I mean, maybe I'm showing my age, but you ever heard of the angry young man syndrome? Jimmy Dean, rebel without a cause, that kind of thing. That does show my age. But um, 
the angry young man. You know what? You know why the angry young man is angry? Because life didn't work out for him like he thought it should. His expectations weren't met. And all of a sudden he's angry. I see that unfolding in some of the marriages in our church. Life just didn't, you know, come off like I wanted it to, and all of a sudden I'm angry. You know, the, my daddy told me I was going to be Miss America, and I didn't make it. My daddy told me I was going to, you know, I was going to, I was going to be the president. I didn't, I didn't make it there. It's easy to love this God and be happy with Him when He meets all of my needs, all of my expectations. As long as He gives me what I, what I think, is good. But let him do something that I define as bad. And the, the focus of the issue is, do I love him or not? That's what's at stake. Is, do I love him or not? That's, why, that's the second reason that I think, or the third, the third reason that I think, or the second reason that I think Paul uses this term love instead of using it. He's describing the people for whom this promise is, a, is to be applied. And he defines them as lovers of God and people called the cult according to his purpose. Why does he use love? Well, because that's the key line of demarcation between Christian and non-Christian. And secondly, that's what's at stake when adversity arises. And finally, um, guys, I hope you can stick with me here because uh, this is going to be a little bit convoluted, but hang in there. Gird up the loins of your mind. A final reason, I think, for Paul using that expression is because there is no more absolute proof of God's love to me than the fact that I love Him. You get that? Gang, 1 John 4.19 teaches very clearly, very clearly, it says simply, we love because we first been loved. The proof that He loves us is that we love Him. Because to love Him is the, is the manifestation of His first having loved me. You know, we sing this song in the, in the Christian church, and really it's a, it's a wonderful song. It, it, it goes like this. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. You know the next line? Because He first loved me. Gang, the greatest proof that God loves you is that you love God. Because you never would had He not loved you first. You love Him? I'll tell you why you love Him. Because He loved you first. And all of us who love this God love Him because He called us to love Him. Loving Him is simply an outward manifestation of being called to love Him. Which really brings us to the second half of the description of the people to whom this promise applies. They love God and they, they are 
the called according to his purpose. Now, ladies and gentlemen, your, your translations are going to vary. If you've got a King James or a New King James, you're going to have the word in there. But if you don't, you're not going to. It's not in the NIV. It's not in the New American Standard. But it's, it's, it's simply the, the article, the. They are not called. They are the called. And ladies and gentlemen, I went back to the Greek New Testament again tonight to check it out. The the is in the Greek text. It's toy. Um, clay toy. You see these things, how they... Well, that's because that the, that definite article, is in the text. Um, to whom does this promise apply? It applies to those who love God and the cult. Not those who are called, but the cult. There, there's a title. There's a name to them. They're the cult. Um, they're a called people according to His purpose, says the text. The promise is limited to the called. You know, all men hear the Gospel, ladies and gentlemen, and yet never has a man been brought to faith simply because he heard. There is this this added, special, effectual, irresistible call. Now, why, why does Paul suddenly introduce that term? Why does he suddenly introduce this called business? Because it's the, it's the only explanation of why these people love God. Because they're the called. And if you love this God, it's proof that He loved you first. You know, John Bunyan, in his, in his Pilgrim's Progress, which is a great little study. We've done it in our grace group, but John Bunyan... Uh, describes Pilgrim before he's converted. He describes him as this person who's running around. This voice keeps coming to him and, and he tries to stop up his ears so that, that he doesn't have to hear it and the call keeps coming. coming. You know, I've, refer, I've alluded to this numerous times. It's a poem entitled The Hound of Heaven by Sir Francis Thompson. I just want to read you a clip. I, I'm not a big poetry guy, but I love this. He says, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my mind. And in the midst of tears, I hid from him. But the call. The call. There is something so inexplicable about these people that love this God of ours. And it's the call. You know, we sometimes don't even understand ourselves. Why, why, why am I so concerned about what's right and wrong? My friends aren't. And I didn't used to be concerned about what's right and wrong. Why am I so concerned? Nobody else seems to be concerned. You know why you're concerned? The call. It's the call. Why do I love the Bible so much? You know, people have been making fun of this book for years. You know, I take it to my high school and boy, they don't like it at all. And the teachers just make fun of it. They say, why do I love this silly thing? It's the call. That's why you love it. How is it that I, 
I, I find this desire in me to know Christ better and better. You know, my family thinks I'm nuts. I used to be a Roman Catholic, and now I'm this, I, all I can, you know, I, they think all my, 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 my years of previous Roman Catholic involvement, I, I'm, I've left that, and now I've got this desire, this, this appetite to know this Jesus better. Why, what, what, what's the matter with me? I uh, I brought my girlfriend uh, uh, to, to my church and and she couldn't understand why I was so excited about this church service. You know, I very frankly I didn't used to be very excited about that church service, but now you know I I, I love this stuff. Why is it that I'm so excited about what's going on and she's so nonplussed? Gang, do you find that you can't be happy in sin anymore? How'd that happen to us? It was the call. You know, folks, and and with this I'll quit, but the blackest of hearts can be good. But they can be good only for a little while. But the purest of hearts, they can be bad. But they can be bad only for a little while. You want to know why? The difference, ladies and gentlemen, in the, in the pure hearts and the black hearts is not because you were smarter or cuter or richer or more winsome. The difference in the black ones and the white ones, ladies and gentlemen, is the call. In a world that is fraught with insoluble difficulties, Ladies and gentlemen, we've got problems. I mean the world. I'm not talking about, well, we do too, but I mean we're facing uh, the rebuilding of a whole section of the country. We're, we've got terrorists that still want to knock down our buildings and kill us. And In the midst of all that, God promises here that He's overruling all things in such a way that they turn out for the good and for the benefit of His people. This text is saying that in the midst of all that I face, God is overruling everything that I face in such a way that whatever it is that I'm wrestling with is going to turn out for my good and benefit. He's doing that. For those who love God, and are the called according to His purpose. And for you who are described by those two clauses, this statement is packed with with immense comfort. 
but it's only available to you. My friend, do not try to steal a comfort that was not intended for you. All things work together for good, but not for all men. All things work together for good to them that love God and are the called according to His purpose. Is that you? Then feast upon the promise of this text. Our Father, I do pray that You will thrill Your people with the kind of commitment that You have made to us. Not only to save us everlastingly, but to take all our pain, all our sorrow, all our difficulty, all our trial, and overrule it in such a way that it, that it abounds to us for good. That You overrule all of, all of the various factors that, that vector in on our lives and You turn it into something that is everlastingly good for us that makes us deeper and better and, and more, more secure people in your love. Teach your people, O oh God, the grand and glorious commitment that you have made to us. For Jesus' sake, in his name we pray. Thanks and good night.